Good morning, Grace Church uh, family here at Grace Church of the Valley. My name is Matt Tebow, and I'll be bringing the word to you this morning. Uh, Grab your Bibles, and you can turn over to Psalm chapter 2. I always want to remind you that what I or anyone else has to say is not really that important, but it is God's word that is eternally important. God's inspired, inerrant, sufficient word is able to uh, restore your soul, make you wise, prepare you and equip you for every good work. This morning's message is not going to be a practical how-to message, not pragmatic. It's not going to address a specific ministry here at Grace Church of the Valley. It's not going to be on how to read your Bible and interpret it better or how to pray better, not even on marriage or on parenting. This morning, I want us to focus just on one thing, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. At present time, our world is not too fond of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now sure, at Christmas time, they're not intimidated by a little baby in a manger, especially when it's accompanied by a jolly man in a big red suit who brings presents and lots of food and festivities. That Jesus is okay. But when we examine the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's coming again to judge, well, that's just too invasive. That's too personal, too uncomfortable. When it gets personal, the world around us is not only indifferent, but they begin to rebel. They begin to rage. And so our objective this morning is that I want to direct you to the majestic reign of Jesus Christ the Son. And in so doing, I want to show you the blessedness for those who fear him and the impending doom for those who oppose him. So look in your Bibles at Psalm chapter 2, and I'll read it in entirety before working back through it. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of God. Bow with me as I pray. Father, we come to you trembling and yet at the same time hopeful. Thank you, Lord, that for those in Christ we rejoice and yet with a reverent rejoicing. Father, would you clear our minds now as we come to your word. Allow us to have eyes to see and behold wondrous things. Lord, would you stir our hearts toward repentance, toward God, worship, and toward Christ-like conformity. God, do a work in this hour, we pray in Jesus. Amen. 
Psalm chapter 2 depicts a story. It is one that unfolds throughout this psalm with multiple characters and multiple scenes. In scene 1, which is stanza 1, you have the people who are under the authority of God who desire to escape. Scene 2, the camera angle shifts, if you will. It pans out to now the God who is in the heavens. Scene 3 hones in on the protagonist, the, the savior of the day, that is the son and his judgment. And scene 4 shows the benevolent, merciful act of the son in giving a fair warning to all those who are failing to surrender. The story, though, it ends with a cliffhanger, doesn't it? It's not yet complete. It foreshadows and it speaks of the end that is to come, but at the time it is written, and I would submit to you even at the time today, it is not over yet. We actually, even in 21st century, are caught up in the middle of this story, caught up in the middle of this psalm. Within this grand narrative, you and I are part of the plot. And so, though the script is already written, the end is sure, our lives, our volition, our affections, our worship matter. They matter. And so, as we turn to this psalm, it is meant for you and I just as much as it was meant for our original audience. Now, a little bit about that. This second psalm was penned by David and certainly had an immediate application for him and his contemporaries. Now, this second psalm, together with the first psalm, actually serve as the introduction to the entire Psalter. So if you look at Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, you have a promise of blessing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And then at the end of Psalm chapter 2, you have a similar promise of blessing when it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together then introduce the Psalter. And Psalm 1 is really who you want to be, right? The man who is planted beside streams of water, who yields fruit in its season, so on and so forth. But Psalm 2 is the reality. <laughs> Psalm 1 is who we want to be. Psalm 2 is the reality. And what we find for both them and us is that the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 1, the person who we want to be, is impossible apart from the Messiah King of Psalm chapter 2. And that brings us then to our big idea for Psalm chapter 2, which is this. The big idea for Psalm 2 is that Jesus is the conquering king who is seated on his throne and is coming again to judge. This is going to be unveiled through four parts. The people who are in the world, the God who is in heaven, the Son who is on the throne, and the Spirit who is in your heart. Let's begin with the people who are in the world and look back again at verse 1. The key question, beginning in 1, is this. Why do the nations rage? David is asking this question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now, we have to wonder, is he asking this out of ignorance? And the answer, of course, is no. <laughs> he knows the answer. Is he asking this as a rhetorical question? He wants you to contemplate it. And I don't think that is right either. It's not that he's surprised, but rather he's asking this question out of pure astonishment. He is astonished. It's a question of disbelief. How could they? <laughs> Why on earth would they do this? What are they thinking? Now, who David has in mind here, he, he tells us in verse 1, he's speaking of the nations. And then in the second part of verse 1, the peoples. In verse 2, it's the kings and the rulers. And really, friends, I think we can expand this to say this is 
of everybody. This is an indictment on all of mankind. This is picturing a universal rebellion thanks to depravity that we inherited from Adam and Eve, a rebellion that is building momentum century by century even to today. What is it that these rebels are doing? Why are they rebelling? Well, look at the verbs. They're raging, verse 1. They're plotting, verse 1. They're taking their stand and they're counseling together in verse 2. So while this may have had, certainly did have an immediate application so many thousand years ago, this is a picture of what we see even today. Now, let me explain this rebellion a little bit more. Look back at verse 1, and you see the word rage. The word rage. This is not a quick-tempered fit. This is not a tantrum. This is not a moment of anger. Instead, this is deep-seated wrath. It's ruminating on anger that eventually becomes rage. And as we would expect, this rage then leads to action. They begin to plot. Who's the they? The nations? The rulers? The kings? and any other human who is yet to submit to God. I think if you and I are honest, we even see this at least in our former selves, if not at times, even in our current selves. There is an anger. Now there is a plotting. There's a rebellion that leads to a plotting. They begin to plan something devious. This leads to verse 2. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves. In other words, their raging and their plotting now has taken form of conviction. They're starting to make a stand. They're letting their position be made known to all. And this leads to now a council. Verse 2, they counsel together. They call in all who agree. They begin to form an assembly. They begin to form a movement. Now you're wondering, how does this relate? What is this about? What is all the raging and the plotting and the standing and the counseling for? Well, they just have one thing in common. Look at the end of verse 2. They're doing all this against the Lord and against his anointed. What's the old adage? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, so it is here. The one thing that all of these nations, all of these peoples and rulers have in common, and it might be the only thing, is that they hate the God of Israel and his Messiah, his son, the king. This is not an attack, friends, listen, even today, this is not an attack against all organized religion. This is not an attack against the God of Islam or the gods of Hinduism. This is a pinpointed strategic attack against God, which is Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his son, the anointed. Now, if you look at verse 2, what you need to know is that that word anointed is extremely significant. In the original language in which this was written, the language of Hebrew, the word is Mashiach, Mashiach, which is transliterated today into Messiah. Now, just so you know, when this is taken into the New Testament, into Greek, it's the word Christos. They are gathering together against the Lord and against Messiah. They're gathering together against the Lord and against Christ, his Christ. This is an attack against Yahweh and against Jesus. But what do they say? What is the nature of this attack? Verse 3, they say, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do the nations rage? Why are they surmounting this rebellion and this attack? Well, simply put, because they hate God. They hate God. 
They despise his authority in their life, and they want one thing. They want freedom. It speaks of bonds and cords here. Now, just to flash back, when I was first converted and first read this, I read the New American Standard Bible, and it took me a long time to figure out why they wanted to tear apart the, another person's feathers. <laughs> But of course, the New American Standard, if you're reading that, says fetters. The idea of bonds and cords and fetters are shackles, right? It's chains. It's handcuffs. They want freedom from what they're viewing as imprisonment. Imprisonment. And yet again, our author says in verse 1, why? Why are you plotting in vanity? Don't you know, O nations? Don't you know, O rebels? Today's world. Don't you know, O unbelievers, what you're doing is a vain thing? It's meaningless. It is toil. It's vanity to try to run from God. And yet, they continue to do so anyways. Not only do they continue to do so, but they do so with aggression. Look again at verse 3. Notice the verbs. They burst their bonds apart and they cast away their cords. Their desire is not just to quietly walk away from God, but it is to do so with pomp and arrogance. It is to throw the shackles they want freedom. They want autonomy. So in, in reasoning together, why would unbelievers do this? Why would rebels do this? It really boils down to the desire for autonomy. They want to be free. God has never done them wrong, but it is the sinful desire of their flesh to be free from any authority. I was helped by the late R.C. Sproul in thinking through this. The word autonomy is a combination of the word atus, which is self, and namas, which is law. It is to say, I want to be a law unto myself. In other words, no one else brings a law into my life. No one else tells me what to do. No one else is my boss. I want to be autonomous, a law unto myself. And this is why I say I think this is more than just speaking of people out there. Isn't it true, friends, that this was the original sin of Adam and Eve? Isn't it true that what they desired really was to be like God and to be free from any rules, any constraint whatsoever from the good and benevolent creator? R.C. likened this as a contradiction. He said, actually, it's a logical fallacy. He said, just like when an immovable object meets an unstoppable force, they cannot both exist, so too man's desire for complete freedom and a sovereign God cannot coexist. Man may have some freedoms, but to desire true autonomy, to be a true law unto oneself, cannot coexist with a sovereign God. And therefore, track with me here, to argue for a worldview where man is free, to argue for a worldview where man should have no constraints, is essentially to argue that there is no God. It is to do away with God altogether. For if God exists, then man is not free. You see, friends, I think already in these first three verses, there is something revealed here about the nature of mankind's heart. If we're honest, we desire the same. We want to be a law unto ourselves. We want to be God. And so as you follow the story from the beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve, through the pages of Old Testament history, even up until the recent Reformation period, there has been an autonomy of man that is expressed. The Enlightenment, during that same time when Martin Luther was 
recovering some of the old doctrines of Scripture. At the same time, mankind was expressing himself in maybe the most clear example of autonomy. If you think back to that time period of enlightenment, what was the enlightenment? And sure, there are good things that have come out of it, but essentially, it was a rebellion against the confines of religion. It was a rebellion against the confines of God. And so, modernism was birthed. Modernism, which says, we don't need God to tell us what is true. We can discover truth on our own. Rationalism, that mankind's intellect and reason is the supreme authority in our lives. And of course, evolution, that we are the greatest species in this long chain of evolution. Today, these types of humanistic thought patterns continue to give birth to new things. Modern psychology theory from Sigmund Freud and so on and so forth. The National Academy of Sciences, just so you know this, this is a very modern and contemporary issue today. The National Academy of Sciences said this, science can say nothing about the supernatural. Whether God exists or does not exist is a question about which science is neutral. Friends, what I want us to see is that man's desire for autonomy, man's desire to burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us is not something that is way out there. It's not something just on the other side of the big ocean. It is right here in our backyards and in our very lives. The desire to be autonomous, to be like God, must be turned from, though. So this first scene is really depicting the sinful and rebellious heart of man who has put the crosshairs of that rebellion directly on God and on his son. But now, as I noted, we move to the second stanza, and the camera angle zooms out. It's been looking at just earth. What is happening on earth among the nations, among the heathen? And yet, the camera angle zooms out, and it says in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. So as to say, meanwhile in heaven, dot, 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 while this is all taking place, I want to remind you that our God is sovereign. God sits and he laughs. While mankind scurries about on the ground, God sits down in heaven. You have a contrast, and quite the contrast, of the God of heaven, that is the Adonai of the Shamayim, the Lord of the universe, right from your text in verse 4, and you have the man of the dirt. You have the nations that are raging and plotting and counseling, and you have God sitting down. You have the nations who are expressing anger and fury and rebellion, and you have God who laughs. God laughs. Why? Well, because he knows his opponent's capabilities. He knows their resources. He even knows their plan of attack, and he is not in the least bit worried. He's not worried in the slightest. In the context of war, he's not fretting. He's not scheming. He's not calling in reinforcements or constructing a new plan. No, instead, it says in verse 4, the Lord holds them in derision. That is to say, he scoffs. Why? Because it's a joke. It's a joke. Spurgeon, in commentating on this, said he called this God's quiet dignity. He points out that God doesn't rise up to do battle with them. He doesn't call them names. He acts calmly and under control, for he knows the final outcome. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 11. You recall that passage. Mankind has unified their forces. They've got together and they've built something great, a tower that nearly reaches to heaven. 
at least from man's perspective. And as you recall, Genesis 11, verse 5, it says God had to come down from heaven just to see their little tower. In the same way, here in Psalm chapter 2, God is not impressed, and nor is he worried about man's forces against him. It says he laughs. But, we'll see, God does not laugh for long. Soon he is moved to speak. Verse 5, it says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now God is moved to action. He speaks, and it says he speaks with fury. Fury comes from the word that means to set ablaze. This is a judgment. It is a statement of judgment. But again, notice God is a God of action. This statement is actually just declaring what he's going to do. Some people are all talk and no action, all bark and no bite. But God, God is a God of action. And so he does so here. What he states in verse 6 is actually something he's already done. So he's not out of control. He's not responding to their rebellion. He is simply standing and declaring, this is what I've done. I have installed my king. What is God's response to the rebellion and to the shaking of the fist toward him? It is to simply declare, this is what I've done about it. God has installed his king. Now, in the immediate context, we know this referred to David, right? David was God's king. He was the man after God's own heart. He was not the people's choice. He wasn't Saul, tall, dark, and handsome. He was a man after God's own heart. And yet we know David signified something much greater. It was through David that God would promise that from your line will come one who will reign. There will be a special son in your long, long line of sons, David, the final son who will occupy my house, who will sit on my throne, and who will rule my kingdom forever. Fast forward to Luke chapter 1, and there's no guesses as to who this son would be. The angel declares to Mary, Mary, you will have a son. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, and this son shall occupy the house of God. He will sit on the throne of God, and he will rule the kingdom of God forever. The angel almost directly quotes 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is the Davidic promise to David that there will be a unique king who will come. This king that is spoken of here is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus, son of Mary, son of God. So what does God think about the rebellion of mankind, both then and through all the centuries and even to today? What are his thoughts about it? What are his thoughts about man's autonomous desires, even that which we have had and perhaps still have? Well, he laughs because it's meaningless, but he also acts. And he acts by installing his king. The king who would be his enemy's king, the king who would be his follower's king, and the king who would be his father's king. As we see in verse 6, it is my king according to God. So this big idea that I presented to you a moment ago is that Jesus is that conquering king. Jesus is the conquering king. But now we move to the third stanza, and it hones in on this king. We see the son who is on the throne, beginning in verse 7. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, 
and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now before we get into the details, I just want you to know what you're seeing here is truly remarkable. We are getting an inside look at a Trinitarian discussion that happened in eternity past where the Father is declaring to the Son His plan for victory. This is amazing. This is a statement from the Father to the Son regarding the decree or the plan. God says to the Son, Jesus, you... You are the one whom the nations are going to hate. You are the one who's going to be called Messiah. You are the one who is going to rule the earth as God. You'll be called God's king, God's son. You will have the entire earth and you will rule it with a rod of iron. This, this is Jesus, even in Psalm chapter 2. And in the end, what we see about this decree is that Jesus will win. (laughs) Jesus will win. Now, during the life of Jesus, certainly he faced opposition. If you think back to those gospel records, again, enemies joined together for one common cause. Those who had previously hated each other joined together just to stop this sovereign king. In fact, all through the Old Testament, this opposition is building momentum, building momentum. The God of this world, Satan, is opposed to the plan. He doesn't want his head to be crushed. And yet, in Jesus' life, Despite perhaps the pinnacle of that opposition, Jesus was victorious, was he not? Though the people of the time wanted to kill him, give us the true criminal to be free as long as we can kill Jesus. Though they thought they were winning in their opposition, even still, what you meant for evil, God was intending for good. The Lord Jesus was victorious in his first coming. He paid the price for sin, which is the very reason for which he was sent. He died on the cross, accomplishing atonement. And therefore, friends, we have all the more reason to believe that he will certainly be victorious in his second coming as well. The decree of Psalm 2 is that God will be victorious. Jesus will win. Verse 8, the Lord Jesus has promised the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. This is speaking forward to that time when Jesus will reign without enemies and without opposition. So Christians, church family here today, we live in the middle of this already not yet reality, do we not? You think about it with me. We're already saved but not yet perfected not freed from the presence of sin. The kingdom has already been inaugurated, but yet not yet fully realized. The war is already won, but the battle is not yet finished. And yet, perhaps the greatest oddity, the greatest paradox, the greatest already not yet reality, summarized by old-time pastor J. Vernon McGee, said this, the scepter of the universe will be held by a man with nail-pierced hands. Jesus has already won. We simply await his arrival. The Son of God, according to verse 8, will own it all. It's already done. God has already done it. The conclusion is sure. He adds in verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, in the biblical times, you know there were 
shepherd's staffs, right? A shepherd's rod. And this staff would be made of wood, and it would be used to steer, to correct, to help the sheep in order to find green pastures and water and safety. But this is no mere staff made of wood. If you notice in verse 9, when Jesus comes back, when he conquers all of his enemies, when he rules the earth, he will do so with a rod of iron. A rod of iron. And surely this can only mean one thing, judgment. Judgment. Now, still, we could suppose, what if this rod of iron strikes something that is very hard? Right back to this immovable object and unstoppable force. If a rod of iron strikes a rock, maybe there's a spark and it takes a while for this to unfold. Perhaps then, in our context, all of the forces of evil, all of the anti-God and anti-Christ attacks, maybe they'll actually be a challenge to Jesus. Perhaps there will be an epic battle and war in the end. Well, it's an interesting thought, but not a biblical one. (laughs) In Revelation 19, we have given to us by the Apostle John a clear picture of what this second coming will look like. In Revelation 19, he says in verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, here they are, gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And then, in perhaps the most anticlimactic fashion possible, verse 20, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Friends, in the end, what is decreed in Psalm chapter 2 is that Jesus will come back. He will rule with a rod of iron and look back at your Bible in verse 9. He will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There is no opposition today or any day that will even be a tiny challenge to the power and sovereign reign of our King, Jesus Isaiah 40 says, the nations are like a drop in a bucket, a speck of dust on the scales. And friends, just to note, a speck of dust is a subcategory of dust. (laughs) The nations as a whole are nothing compared to the almighty power of God and of his Christ. Therefore, returning to Psalm chapter 2, this language in verse 9 is meant to show the weightiness, the severity, and the surety of Jesus' coming judgment. We know, though, that those who fail to bow the knee in this life will surely be brought to in the next. Revelation 14, verse 11. Every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess. So let me summarize this and give you two takeaways just from this stanza. God has made a decree. And when God makes a decree, surely it comes to pass. And what he has said here are two things. Number one is that Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is reigning both now and forevermore. According to Psalm 110, the Lord has caused the Lord of David to sit at his right hand. Jesus is on the throne. Even amidst a liberal, godless, and anti-Christ society, even today, Jesus is on the throne. But second, Jesus will come to judge. 
We are not promised that everything will be made right in our lifetime. We're not promised prosperity or blessing or even ease of life and comfort. But we are promised in 2 Timothy 4.1 that Jesus Christ is the judge of both the living and the dead. We are promised in Isaiah 62 verse 1 that he will destroy the enemies of God. He will right every wrong. He will bring peace on the earth and he will establish the kingdom of God. We are promised that he will preserve and persevere the church in its mission and its holiness. We may face a time of persecution. As we stand with Christ, the godless world will continue to rage. They will continue to plot. They will continue to take their stand and their counsel together. And friends, if we stand with Christ, we will be persecuted. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you with the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. He could only say this because he knew that in the end he will win. Jesus will have it all. Every ounce of creation will be submitted to him. Every nation will be surrendered to him and every heart will be in submission to Jesus the King. Returning to Psalm chapter two, the question is then, what do we do now? Is it all over? Is there no hope? The lines have been drawn. You're either in or you're out. Well, no, he gives one final stanza, the spirit who is in your heart. The final act of this story is an undeserved warning. Yes, a merciful plea from a benevolent king. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. In the sovereignty of God and his providence in guiding uh, the inscription and the writing of this passage, he gives a warning. He says, wise up, kings. It's not too late. Accept the reality of your situation. You are not God. But it's not too late for you to come. He says, cease and desist. This is the final warning. Do not proceed. To think that even in the midst of the raging and the plotting and the standing and the counseling, that God would have the love, the mercy, the patience to still extend hope. This is amazing. Amazing suffering, long-suffering, amazing love from our God. He says, be wise, O kings, and be warned. Verse 11, he says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. He pleads to them now with action words. Notice he says, serve and fear and rejoice and tremble. This is our response. This ought to be our response if we're already in Christ and certainly our response if we're not in Christ. But perhaps you're looking at this and wondering, well, how do those words fit together? To serve and to fear, to rejoice and to tremble? It begins with our understanding of what does it mean to fear God? <laughs> What does it mean for us to fear God? And in our modern vernacular, we equate that with being afraid of something, don't we? And yet, the Bible's clear. Christians should never be afraid of God, especially since we're his sons. We're his family. Others have equated fearing the Lord with reverence. 
right? Revering Him, honoring Him, lifting Him up in high regard. And certainly the fear of God includes reverence as part of it. But when you examine all the passages on what it means to fear God, the Psalms and the Proverbs and elsewhere, this concept of fearing God is more than just reverence as well. In fact, look back at our verse and notice the other action words that are included with the command to fear. He says to fear and rejoice. So part of what it means to fear God means that at the same time we can fear and yet also have joy. We can rejoice. Speaking to this apparent paradox, Charles Spurgeon, the old preacher in England, said, fear without joy is torment. But joy without a holy fear, well, that's presumption. He said, if you abstract fear from joy, it becomes light and fluffy joy. It's giddiness. It's just happy in a moment. But at the same time, if you abstract joy from fear, it becomes slavish. And so again, notice the sovereign wisdom of our God to tell us that you need to fear God, but also rejoice in Him. What we find is that this deep-seated fear This reverence for the majesty, the power, and the reign of the Lord Jesus actually produces joy. (laughs) Not a fleeting happiness, not like a cloud that comes and then it's gone, but this is joy that has depth, joy with roots that go deep into the ground, joy that has girth to it. So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, Jesus delighted to fear God. And in the same way, it ought to be our joy and pleasure, good friends, that we delight to fear his name. Proverbs 28, verse 14, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Nehemiah 1, 11, Lord, hear the prayers of your servants who delight to fear your name. And so too in Psalm chapter 2, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. But fear is not just about revering God and also Being joyful in God, it's also about love. Psalm 145, verse 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him, speaking of God. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. He puts those two qualities of man in parallel, to fear God and to love God. And so again, fearing God is not being afraid. It's not just revering God. It's also rejoicing in God, but it's also loving God. Michael Reeves, the author of a book on this very topic, says, A right fear of God does not stand in tension with love for God. It is not as if love draws us near and fear distances. True fear of God is true love for God defined. It is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all his grace and glory. So friends, fear and joy and love are friends. We can do all in our relationship to God. And this is perhaps best explained by the next verse, verse 12. Notice the first three words. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Other translations, pay homage to the Son. Worship or honor the Son. There's something, though, in this word, of this word that's translated kiss in the ESV, that is innocent. It is pure. It is happy and at the same time worshipful. The church father Jerome translated this, give pure worship. 
So perhaps we can conclude this then, that to fear God and to rejoice in Him and to love Him is all at once to give pure, affection-filled worship to our God. Who? All of you. All of you. I want to note something for you in this. Look at your Bible in verse 12. When he says, kiss the son, he uses a very uncommon word for the word son. He uses not the, not the Hebrew language, which the majority, 99% of the Old Testament is in Hebrew. He uses an Aramaic term. Now, why on earth would he use an Aramaic term just for one word? Well, perhaps for the same reason that the book of Daniel in chapters 2 all the way to chapter 7 are also written in Aramaic. And when you go to Daniel, what you find is that chapter 2 through chapter 7 are a message to the nations that their empires will one day crumble. It's a message that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is the one true sovereign king, and that it's not too late for you, O pagan nations, Babylon, Assyria, and Persia. It's not too late even to come Greece under Alexander the Great. It's not too late, O nations, to come and surrender to the one true king. God wrote it in Aramaic so that the whole world would hear, that they could read and understand that the God of Israel is actually a God of all who are willing to come. And in the same way in our text here in verse 12, kiss the Son, who? All of you. This offer extends to all. Even as Jesus would conclude the Bible essentially with Revelation 22 Verse 17, whosoever will may come. This final stanza, I titled The Spirit Who's in Your Heart because it's an invitation. It's an invitation, and actually it's one that you can't do on your own. You need God's help. It's an invitation, though, nonetheless, that bids you to come to the Lord, to give pure worship to God and to His Son. It's an invitation to abandon all desire for self-autonomy, all desire to be God in your own life, and instead to submit and to bow the knee to King Jesus. Is the Spirit then working in your heart? Come to Jesus and give Him pure worship. Is He convicting you of your sin? Come to Him, and as verse 12 says, find refuge in Him. Is He leading you away, even as a Christian, from tendencies toward self-autonomy? from tendencies to rebel against authority, ultimately God's plan, God's authority in your life, he calls you to come and give pure worship, rejoice, and yet at the same time tremble and experience his blessedness. Friends, his wrath is not yet at, his, at its peak, but as verse 12 says, his wrath is quickly kindled. It doesn't take long, and it won't be long. His wrath, is, his, his wrath is easily kindled, and therefore we must respond with urgency. What we see from this psalm is that Jesus is the conquering king who is seated on his throne and is coming again to judge. And I want to conclude with just a few implications from this, a few timeless truths for us to consider as we leave here this morning. The first is that surely this is a merciful invitation, isn't it? What a merciful invitation from a sovereign God who has been rebelled against by every last one of us. It is a merciful invitation even to those who are presently shaking their fist at God, saying, God, fight me. I hate you. 
I want freedom. God bids them come. Come and bow the knee to the king. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish. Come, but come quickly. If you're here today and Christ is not your king, he's not the Lord of your life, we bid you to come and worship the king and experience the blessedness of finding refuge in him. Second, this psalm is a powerful caution to those who belong to the Lord and yet find themselves desiring freedom, desiring self-autonomy, struggling with his authority. Friends, here's what I want to say. Trade it in. (laughs) Trade in the clenching, the tight-fistedness with your life, with outcomes that you can't control, with things that you don't like. Open the hand to the Lord. Isn't it better to trust and obey than to go our own way? Do you want to get God's attention even as a Christian? Here's what the Bible says in Psalm 33, verse 18. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those whose hope is in his steadfast love. Exchange your self-entitlement, your self-desire to be your own king for fearing God and following him as the Lord of your life. And finally, this psalm is a settling declaration. A settling declaration that in the end, Jesus will win. Jesus will win. No secular force, no false religion, no movement of our time will prevail. But Jesus will win. He's already decreed it. He's already made the victory when he died and rose again. Therefore, We don't need to lose our sanctification, so to speak. We don't need to multiply gray hairs in worrying about things that God has not called us to worry about. Jesus told us, seek my kingdom, my righteousness. He told us to go and make disciples. He told us to love God and love our neighbor. With those things, we should be occupied. But the rest, give it up to the Lord. Let this be a a settling declaration for your heart. And let me close with this. Don't miss the promise, and the blessing of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 